0: You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. All right, so let's just go ahead and jump right into the content today. And I want to give sort of lay the predicate of where we are today. And then we're going to go back in history to take a look at sort of how we got here. All right, Jack? Yeah. So March 12th, 2023, we have the first of the large bank failures, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Directly after that, there was Signature Bank, uh, Credit Suisse, one of the largest uh, banks uh, and and oldest in the world. Uh, March 15th failed and was bought up by USB. And then, of course, most recently, First Republic Bank uh, on May 12th. And when you put them all together, these bank failures were every bit as large as the failures of 2008. In terms of assets that were purchased, backed up by the Fed, so these weren't not insignificant. But so let's talk about that, Jack. How did we get to this place with these large regional banks failing? What's going on here?
1: Yeah. So to understand the nature of the crisis, we have to rewind to uh, understand. You know, how, how did we get to the trigger point? The trigger point for the Silicon Valley. Failure was a sale of mortgage backed securities failures. They needed to raise cash. We'll talk about why they needed to raise cash. But uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, they needed to raise cash and they sold some securities, some mortgage backed securities that were on their balance sheet. They sold them at a loss that kind of teed everybody, included everybody in. So there were significant embedded losses on their balance sheet. And then that idea led to a run on the bank. But to understand kind of how we get to that point, We have to rewind uh, several years. So the the mortgage backed securities that they owned in the first place. Why were they buying mortgage backed securities in the first place? Is I think a a good place to start. Why were the regional banks purchasing up mortgage backed securities? Yeah, and and other securities. So they had there was a, a you know a lot of money printing that happened post COVID. A lot so a lot of cheap money on bank balance sheets. They made a ton of money with PPP loans deposit rates were at an all-time low because and deposit levels were at an all-time high so deposit rates were at an all-time low so banks became this set of institutions that had a tremendous amount of very cheap liabilities mm-hmm. something to, you know it's important to think about it that way when we go deposit money into the local bank the money that's sitting there it's not sitting in an escrow account it's a liability on that bank's balance sheet and they and there's a cost to that if it's your checking account it's nothing. If it's your savings account, maybe it's a, it was maybe half a point to a point. Sure. CD rates, you know, vary based o- over time, but those are all the bank liabilities, right? Like, Grandmom
0: uh, goes and takes her life savings, 150 grand, 200 grand, walks into Silicon Valley bank and says, I want to put this in a savings account. She's going to get 1%. That sa- that 150 grand of
1: grandmom's money is a liability on the bank accounts uh, balance sheet yeah on the bank's balance sheet yeah exactly uh and in the case of silicon valley bank it was hey this venture capital firm just raised 50 million dollars of of you know of a series c financing and it's and that 50 million dollars is sitting in the bank's uh bank account as a liability and it's very cheap for them so they have an incentive to go deploy that capital cuz they can make money on it if right, they go the spread. they go make loans or if they go invest in other things with that 50 million dollars they're able to keep the spread you know they go invest and in this case they go invest in mortgage backed securities at 3% at the time they're collecting three points on 50 million dollars and they're paying that venture capital firm you know 25 basis points they're spreading that difference and it's a lot of money so at the end of the day The temptation for the temptation for bank boards or for CFOs to you know CEOs you know C-suite teams to deploy that capital, the greed behind that, frankly, like was was the driving decision behind behind doing so. Now, I'm going to finance nerd out here real quick. The original sin though was that they were borrowing short, so they were borrowing deposits which are callable at any time, right?
0: Yeah, grandmom can walk in and get her money anytime she wants.
1: Right, so they, they have the risk that grandma comes in the next day, in this case, the venture capital firm with Silicon Valley Bank, sure, and requests their money the next day. But they, what they were using that, those deposits for were to go buy long-duration loans, Mo- you know, mortgage-backed securities that they expected to stay on their balance sheet for five years. Or government
0: bonds at, yeah. you know, Absolutely. Some, Whatever some, duration. Sure. Yeah. There you go.
1: And in finance 101, you, you learn that that is an original sin. That is the reason for the SNL crisis in the 80s. Like We did see this one before. This was not a new set of circumstances. Borrowing short and investing long is called asset liability duration mismatch. And it is finance 101 for don't do this. It may kill you.
0: For those of you listening right now, I want you to get out number two pencil And put a put a note in the margin. Jack just laid. Give me that one more time. What what do we what is that? What is that called again? It's
1: asset liability duration mismatch. The idea is that the assets on your balance sheet how you how long you expect them to stay outstanding should match your liabilities, your borrowings. So, like if you invest in five year loans, you should borrow money that will that won't expire before five years because you may get called it. Three and then you you'll be forced to sell the stuff the, your assets before maturity so if you line up the duration then you never take any interest rate risk right so borrowing on two days' notice and investing for five years is like 101 don't do it and but you know frankly the greed of this situation uh, with such so much cheap money led this you know the the c-suites of of these various banks to Gamble and they lost, yeah, um, which is why the equity holders ultimately got got uh, wiped out.
0: Well, let's take a step back, uh, so we know where we are today, and we're going to take a step back and sort of look at history uh, from from where we've been uh, since, say like 2000, 2004, and then we're going to bring it back to the current day and sort of how it affects our audience, mm-hmm. right? how today's market affects the audience and what we can sort of expect moving forward. But let's take that step back in time here. So, man, we were talking uh, right before we hit the record button here about, you know, if you would have come to me in 2000 and, you know, 15 years ago, two thousand six, five, four, 5, 4, whatever, and say, Wall Street, Craig, is going to be in the game of residential real estate investing. You would have looked at me like I had three heads. And said I was crazy. They would never get into that game. So tell us how what what led us to that moment where where Wall Street was like, "Mm, I think we're going to jump in.
1: Yeah. So to your point, in in two thousand seven, when I started uh, with Dominion, I was working at an office street in New York, purely institutional capital. And I had met Fred, and he was doing this buying houses. And there was like, I was like, well, who you know who are the institutional players who are doing this because. (laughs) clearly this is real estate. There must be some institutional involvement. He's like, there's none. like, it's, it's a bunch of guys. It was the biggest, it was one of the, I think one
0: of the greatest mom and pop businesses. Oh, amazing. um, Completely fragmented.
1: Yeah. No major players. Great yields. Great, incredible yields. You would get these because they were single family houses. You would get, you could buy at the time you could buy, you know, an 11 cap house in the shadow of a seven and a half cap apartment building. And I'm like, it's the same location. It's the same tenant. Like surely the operational difficulties can be overcome with 400 basis points of spread. And so I, when, when I, you know, figured this out, when I met Fred and and he was pitching me on like what the business model was, I was like, this makes no sense. Like this is phenomenal. Like this, this feels like you know, superior risk adjusted return. Yeah. Now, Clearly today, fast forward today, and there's a lot of institutional involvement in even tertiary markets. Yep. And all of that happened in the wake of the Great Recession, right? In, in 2008,
0: 2008 occurs, right. there's just a ton of carnage, a lot of assets that are valued for pennies on the dollar.
1: Yeah, well, be, being taken back, and but not until 2010 and really 11 and 12 were they taken in by the bank's who were then forced sellers and on mass, right? And who were then forced sellers, who were then forced to put them on the market. And that led to, and at the same time, and the only place to get money at the time was the banks who were selling the assets, who had no interest in deploying capital into the stuff that they're just trying to get off their balance sheet. Right. So it was like, it was, it was equity only. yeah. And so the, the, the assets cleared at an equity only price. You just, you couldn't get debt by and large, we still got some debt from certain banks, but like by and large, like you couldn't get debt on these assets. So they, the, the values dropped to a point where the equity would buy it on the unlevered return by itself. And those were phenomenal prices, right? So, so in the
0: early 2000s, really, you know, for decades prior to that, if you wanted to have a small business, if you wanted to go purchase uh, investment real estate, you'd walk down to your local bank that had probably had two or three branches in your state or in your county. And you'd ask for a loan and the bank would basically become a partner in your business. Yeah. You know, you're going to get a quick loan. It's probably not going to be the cheapest loan ever, but it was cheap enough and it was easy. I got a call uh, after flipping hundreds of houses here in Baltimore and successfully repaying every one of those loans sometime around 2007 from our small local bank here. And I won't name them, but you know who they were. Began with an S, ended with an E right and so this tiny little bank that had been in uh, business for i think over 100 years two branches called me up and said uh, as much as we love you and you've been a great customer craig we're out of business we're not going to under we're not going to write any more of that paper and that effectively started a long and i don't think it's it's even come to an end yet um sort of dissolution and disappearance of these small community banks, which have been so critical to the success and growth of many of uh, small towns and counties and even cities across America. So maybe we can just speak to that quickly and sort of the evolution of how Wall Street then entered the business in, in that 2012 timeframe.
1: Yeah. So there's there's really this these two parallel paths, the commercial banking industry's involvement in residential real estate and wall street's involvement in residential real estate which really didn't start like the starting point on wall street's involvement is really in the 2011 2012 yes. time frame before that it was all commercial banks uh and so you know the commercial banks took a lot of hits in the great recession because they had a lot of residential real estate exposure particularly through land builders or i'm sorry home builders uh and land developers and a lot of single family folks too of course and then so they're the forced seller at the same time as they were the the only financier of the asset class which you know led to a big decrease in those prices and there was such su- such a disconnect in the market the prices got so good that that and there was enough volumes for the first time ever that where there was actually a volume of single family real estate like yeah if you when you know when i when i told my buddies what i was going to when i was going to go do in baltimore buying single family houses yeah they were like well how do you how do you make any money and i'm (laughs) like well they're 12 caps and they're like oh that's cool but like you can't deploy any real capital though because you're deploying capital like 80 grand at a time and i'm like yeah, 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 but you know it's a twelve cap, so like oh, we'll figure it out. Like <laughs> right, you know right. we can do we can do a bunch of them. Right. But you know, Wall Street just wasn't interested because you couldn't. There wasn't enough inventory to really deploy large amounts of capital until 2011, when and really 2012 when you saw uh, the what became Public Reits. But at the time, you know, the the, um, the private equity groups, you know, Invitation being the most probably the most famous and one of the earliest most aggressive actors. Yeah. Blackstone's company through Invitation Homes were now standing with us at the courthouse steps in in Atlanta and buying houses en masse. In 2012,
0: you show up to Atlanta because uh, you wanted to- Prices were great. Yeah. 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 You saw the great spreads and a decent amount of inventory, I would assume. So yeah. you take a whole bunch of cashier's checks down to the courthouse steps and you start bidding on houses and notice standing right next to you now-
1: Yeah. Is some suit from New York <laughs> who'd also flown down that day. You're like, what the heck? Who's this guy? Yeah and they're buying houses very aggressively. They've got a long-term thesis that this stuff is undervalued. They were 100% correct. And they start deploying large amounts of capital into the space. And so as the, equity, as the, as the Wall Street equity was deployed into single-family real estate, really, fr- you know, frankly, because the, like, the yields were too good to be true, they figured this stuff must be going up. But once, once the equity, Wall Street equity was deployed into single-family real estate, well, the Wall Street equity called their Wall Street Debt Buddies, over at Deutsche Bank in this case, and said, "Hey, we need you to figure out how to finance this stuff." And they figured it out, right? Because there were fees to be made, and so that was the first time that Wall Street debt got in—you know—figured out the single-family real estate space. That was the beginning of, of really of the industry. From that point forward, you had other private equity firms in real estate and in, in, in Wall—you know—institutional capital buying properties which led to them doing their own securitizations, which is how Wall Street generally raises debt. Slow down there, big guy. Jack is off to the races. He's very excited. So
0: it's two parallel paths we're talking about here. I want to paint a picture, a real quick story, if I could, Jack, of what it looked like back there in that sort of 2011-12 timeframe. I was actually buying houses in Phoenix, Arizona, which was one of the hardest hits market in the country. these houses were built in that two thousand three four five time frame. So they were essentially new. They're in these large tracks. and um, what we were seeing when we got the, to to the Phoenix area was you would have a DR Horton, and an NVR, you know whatever the builder was, in these massive tracks and you'd ride into a neighborhood and you would just see the mains coming up, the the main stacks coming up out of the ground. Yeah. Pipe farms. It, it pipe farms. And then there will be one completed house. Yeah. We would buy that one that probably sold for 350 new. We were getting it for 80 grand at the courthouse steps. And right. so, so these. this is the spreads that the Wall Street companies were seeing at the time. We would buy it for 80 grand, do a little patch and paint, sell it in a weekend for a buck 75. Right? And there were thousands and thousands of these properties available, so when you talk about the volume that was now readily available for these large companies to deploy this massive capital and equity, that was step one. but the industry has matured greatly in the last ten years right they're not just uh you know so so now we've got uh, two parallel paths we've got an equity path and a debt path, so speak to that
1: yeah so the um so the institutional debt path you know the next step for them was uh, single borrower securitizations. So, like Progress Residential, American Homes for Rent would do their own securitization, which is, based, is just raising debt. It's just, you know, instead of going to a local bank and asking for a loan, because they're asking to raise $300 million and no one wants to do that $300 million slug, they parse it up, you know, they, 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 they document it so that they can sell it in pieces and they sell it. But at the end of the day, it's just raising debt and so they raised debt so they could continue to buy more houses and the institutions went on a you know a, a long protracted buying spree there were ended up being some other uh, institutional debt providers who then said hey i want to provide debt to to main street and so in in the um, the early conferences the 2014 15 16 conferences they were dominated by it was it was another blackstone company called b2r finance a um Cerberus-owned company called First Key, and then uh, a Colony-owned company, which became Corvest. And uh, Corvest ended up being kind of like the last man standing in that. But Corvest, and 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 Corvest continues to exist today, uh, though now they're owned by a mortgage REIT. They um, were focused on lending to Main Street borrowers. Explain that. For the first time. Which was huge. Yeah. Big, big kind of like tide shift in the industry.
0: Because prior to that, you would either walk into your community bank and get a, a loan, walk down to your friends, family, and fools who would lend you the money to go buy a house or two, right. or you would come to a hard money lender like Dominion was or and still is, frankly. But you guys basically had your own fund of money put together, for lack of a better word, until a company like Corvest comes in and says, no, we want to, we want to lend to you dominion is that correct
1: um well let's let's draw the distinction between kind of between short-term capital and long-term capital so good. what i was the, the Cor- corvest was interested for the first time in lending long-term capital to real estate investors which is the first time that they're really competing with the banks for that for, for providing long-term financing there were now banks would also provide short-term you know bridge financing though the service level wasn't as good as your hard money lender which is why generally folks would pay higher rates for to, to work with a hard money lender. Let's leave the bridge space aside for a second and just focus on the, the long-term side. That Corvest B2R uh, first key uh, entrance in the market was the first time that Wall Street money was going to lend to Main Street investors and compete with the local banks. Sure, And then their goal was then to go do a securitization.
0: And so what does that loan product look like? It was a 30 year type thing or
1: no nah, 10 years it was either a 5 or 10 year loan fixed rate yield maintenance so like you couldn't you really couldn't prepay it was extraordinarily expensive to pre you know to, to prepay the loan so they wanted you know they wanted to lend you money at 7% and lock that in for 10 years sure. or lock that in for 5 years in a lot of cases and so it was an option and if you couldn't go to your local bank say say you were a small fund and no one wanted to sign a personal guarantee and all the banks required a personal guarantee so you, you say you wanted a non-recourse option, Corvest was where you went for that because oh. they were kind of the only place mm-hmm. to go. So when 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 B two R and First Key fell out or you know got out of the market, Corvest became kind of the only game in town for a couple years with a non-recourse option. And then the next kind of iteration of that long-term financing that happened was that a couple enterprising. Uh, companies, Verus was probably one of the the main companies that, that kicked this off. Created a product that was based off of the debt service coverage ratio. The underwriting was based off of the debt service coverage ratio of of the of the real estate. What year
0: are we talking here?
1: I think this is seventeen eighteen. Okay, uh, and so. You know, early innings. They thought they they're like, this is a huge underserved market. You know, we we can compete with the banks if we could get Wall Street used to, if we can get the the, the bond buyers used to buying this product, we can drive rates down and grab market share. And they did that. They did the heavy lifting of familiarizing the rating agencies with how this uh, product behaved, the nature of the market, et cetera. And they got wider and wider adoption for what is now known as DSCR loans. So let's just kind of drill in right
0: there on this DSCR loan product that really was quite revolutionary. I mean, we, we were just talking and we were talking about sort of what's available to the uh, investor with a portfolio. He's, hang- he's a landlord. He's hanging on to this stuff for a while. Um, he's going to walk into his local bank still today and probably get a five or 10 year loan product. Right. Wall Street comes along. And now they want to compete with the banks, and they come out with this DSCR debt service coverage ratio loan product. And uh, you know, explain what it is and why it has really revolutionized um, sort of the the industry for the for the average investor.
1: Yeah, yeah. So as you said, the, the banks' typical loan product and still is either a five or a ten year loan with typically five years of fixed rate and then an adjustment. Yep. Maybe during an aggressive period of time, you might have gotten your bank to do a 10 year fixed rate loan. definitely very hard to come by now. then you had i'll use Corvest as the example Corvest using kind of a commercial mortgage backed security approach to the industry where they were doing 10 year loans and they were and with basically don't prepay them, so you, you took a lot of interest rate risk as the borrower or you, you gave up a lot of flexibility as the borrower to work with them. But then when Veris started using they They kind of changed the approach, and they use much more of a a Wall Street but residential mortgage-backed security approach, where they said, "Hey, we're doing loans and getting them securitized that are not qualified mortgages, right? Not Fannie Freddie eligible, where you know at, at the time, you could do a bank statement loan, or you know for for whatever or, or for whatever reason you would' you couldn't qualify for the Fannie Freddie product. Sure. There was still a product for you. It was a little bit more expensive but there was some aspect to it that verus would get their heads around to make sure it was still a good loan and and then issue that loan and then go securitize that in the secondary market and they would educate the bond buyers on why this was still a good loan right so verus had the vision to that is a lot of heavy lifting by the it's way it's a lot of heavy lifting god's work so verus had the vision to apply that idea to investment real estate for for landlords and introduced this competing product, which was ultimately being funded by through the residential mortgage-backed securitization pipes that already existed. But they added—they just added a new product, and they said, "Hey, it's it's a DSCR loan because its underwriting is based off of the debt service coverage ratio of the rent that's coming from the property, the house, uh, and the ratio of that rent relative to the principal, interest, tax, and insurance payment." That this loan is going to require, mm-hmm. and so they set up some other various guidelines to keep from trying to game that system and try to you know try to just make sure the paper was actually good. A lot of boxes to check. A lot of boxes to check. But at the end of the day, those boxes did not include show me your tax return. Didn't include show me your full REO schedule. Give me and calculate your debt to income ratio. So for a self employed borrower, which is a lot of real estate investors. It was a much easier and, to the, from the borrower's perspective, logical underwrite than even going to their local bank, who was going to ask them for two years of tax returns and financial statements and REO schedule and. You know, We'll work on that for a couple of weeks and then I'll take you to loan committee and then I'll come back to you for a couple other things. And maybe 90 days later, you get your phone loan funded if you've got a diligent loan officer. Yes,
0: n- nothing like the uh, loan committee that meets once a month and you call them one day after they've met. met and now you got to wait another month for yeah. them to meet. One of the hurdles that I see here with, this, with this, these big Wall Street companies is they've got a massive amount of capital deploy, but they don't have boots on the ground. Right. Who became the boots on the ground?
1: Right. So, so the boots on the ground for the local for the commercial banking industry was always your loan officer, right? Right. Local guy. Local loan officer been in the been in the community for decades. Knew it down to the zip
0: code, which ones were hot and which ones were not. Exactly.
1: That's you know that you know, provided a service level. That service level got less and less as banks were consolidated in the wake of Dodd Frank. Yep. Um. In the wake of the Great Recession, uh. And so that service level has. Mm-hmm generally as a trend gotten worse over the past 10 years. But it's still, but there, but there was an in-place distribution network, right? The commercial banks do have an in-place distribution network, even though it's getting worse over time. Sure. As you pointed out, Wall Street really didn't have a distribution network. And so with the 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 CMBS product, that Corvest product, they were trying to create it organically. They were going out to the real estate investors themselves I remember that. Since they were only going after folks who could do a 10-year fixed rate loan and not prepay the thing, they wanted non-recourse. There were only so many, there were, you know, probably hundreds, maybe a couple thousand uh, potential borrowers, but they thought that hey, we can deploy a lot of capital this way and it's the logical next step in the maturation of the industry. Sure. And they did that. When DSCR product came out really in 2018, the rates weren't quite as good, but there was no distribution network. And so they went to various and I'm gonna just. There were other people as well. I'm just using them as my example, right? Sure. Like, you know, they're, they're getting all my props for this for this evolution, but they they went to.
0: That's Jack actually saying he's
1: envious of the work that they've dude, done. Ki- like, yeah, I, and I just I know a bunch of people over there, and they're killers. They're absolute killers. Absolute badasses. Oh. So the. Uh, they went to where mortgage back where, where mortgages had always been originated which is the the mortgage broker space sure so for 2018 and 2019 the vast majority of loans that got originated that were dscr loans got originated through mortgage brokers conventional mortgage brokers this was just another product in the quiver when you called your mortgage broker and you were like hey i'm self-employed
0: do you happen to do commercial loans as well right Right. yeah
1: yeah and they'd say like hey i need a mortgage on my house and they'd be like oh you're a real estate investor i you know what i have a a new product for that right and so very opportunistic yeah some stuff got written and organic yeah yeah so so some some paper got written but it was not like but we didn't really hear a ton about it and at the time it was early on and so it was more expensive than what you could get at a local bank. So oh, that's right. Yeah. You mentioned that. If you had a banking relationship, it didn't make sense to take that loan because you could go to your local bank and get money at 150 basis points cheaper, Got 200 it. basis points cheaper. So you know, why would I go do that? It's painful, but I'll deal with, for 200 basis points, I'll deal with the pain. In 2020, in the wake of COVID, that was a game changer for, for the DSCR product because everyone got scared the fed dropped the rate, fed dropped rates to zero started printing cash putting a, put a lot of cash into the economy which really drove the drove all of the interest rates down right and so with that new lower benchmark interest rate you know, uh, index the all of a sudden in late 2020 the dscr product was now actually more uh, was actually cheaper is actually wow. cheaper than your local bank for the first time. It's significantly or significant enough, right? It was the same rate, but the DSCR product was offering you a thirty-year fixed rate, yeah, and your is... bank was still offering you that ten-year loan with a five-year with only five years of fixed rate
0: with decreasing service levels. And now you've got right. guys like uh, you know your company and others who are just poised and ready to service these these borrowers with this new thirty-year product that is priced more competitively than the local bank.
1: Yeah, exactly. Unheard of. Yeah, and so once that became the product, right? Because it was cheaper, all of a sudden it wasn't just being offered by mortgage brokers to whatever random real estate investor might call them. Then at that point the distribution network got expanded to the the private lender network. Like all the all the small private lenders and hard money lenders and, and big private lenders and hard money lenders who are talking to real estate investors every single day selling them bridge loans mm-hmm. offering them you know th- this was just the complementary product i can offer you short-term money i can offer you long-term money but i'm selling to the same investor and so it made it just made too much sense to be able to offer a dscr loan uh to somebody who was taking a bridge loan
0: and it's a massive market
1: yeah and it's a yeah and it's a much bigger market Than bridge. Can you talk about
0: sort of how the business exploded at that time for you?
1: Yeah, sure. So we we recognized that as as soon as those rates got even close, and then they actually became more, you know, even became uh, cheaper. That that we were like, this is just where the industry is going. I can offer the same rates, better terms, and my service level, and I'm competing with that with the banker with with the the 55 year old banker who's getting pressure to deploy lots of capital. Like he can't, uh, that bank, that banker is having a hard time making a $250,000 loan economically at all, much less deliver a service level. Whereas this is my core customer. We got into the, we already distinguished ourselves in the bridge business as being speed and service. And so now I can offer long-term money at better rates and better terms, and also still deliver that speed and service. Like this was, this was a no brainer. Yeah. So we 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 pushed all in on that uh hired a lot of people and originated and have been originating a lot of that paper and so and I think that that is frankly kind of the way that the industry has gone the DS, there you may today well sorry, you may ninety days ago have been able to go to your local bank and uh get a actually you know what let me back up there real quick, please so in the middle of twenty twenty two was an interesting point in time because the securitization market got very expensive because of all the, the all the uh, the volatility in the capital markets in 2022. And so, in the middle of 2022, DSCR loans be, were very expensive. They were seven, eight percent, or they were 8%, eight percent, eight percent plus. And so that didn't, from what from from what was at the lowest from as low as four. I mean, we were down wow. to we were we were writing paper at four consistently. Okay, so you're
0: writing paper in, at four. What year? 22, um, 2021, 2021, middle of 2021. Yeah. And then less than two years, it was, you know, with, with the market changing the way it did. One up year.
1: It was a year and a, a year later is up 400 basis points. And so, uh, you know, that's you know, not, not very interesting financing. You know, you're in your, the real estate prices haven't come down. So you're still buying that same, like six and a half cap piece of rental property. And now instead of financing at four, which makes total sense, you're now going to finance it at eight. Right. So, Volumes dropped considerably, yeah I, I
0: think you and I had lunch right around that time, and you're like, the phones have stopped ringing yeah, it was like it was, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah if you needed the loan, sure we got it, but sure. but at that point, we started calling for, for our real core real estate business we we started calling our banks back because in middle of twenty twenty two they still have cheap deposits, and that's we want to circle back here because this is this is an episode about banks um and the banks still had cheap deposits in the middle of twenty twenty two so if you got a term sheet from them in the middle of twenty twenty two it was good. It was all of a sudden once again two, now is once again two hundred basis points cheaper. sure. and so you went back to bank if in the in the second half of twenty twenty two maybe the first couple months of twenty twenty three But what has changed now though so so but the Fed has been increasing interest rates on banks. For you know, going on a year now, you called it the big sledgehammer. Yeah, the Fed, the Fed has a big sledgehammer, right? It it can do two things to affect monetary policy. It's 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 trying to drive down inflation and maximize employment, and it has only two tools to do this, and uh, they're both kind of sledgehammers. One is it can buy securities, so it did that in the wake of the Great Recession, buying mortgage-backed securities called it's called quantitative easing, mm-hmm. referred to as quantitative easing. And the other is that it can in- increase the the interest rate that it charges banks. Now, here's what I consider to be a misunderstood idea in that context. So the Fed starts increasing rates a year ago at this point, right? Yep, well, yep. actually more than a year ago at this point. But if the banks aren't borrowing the Fed's money, well, then nothing really happens. Because I can tell you that it, you know, my interest rates have gone up to, to, to 15%, Craig. But if you're like, well, I'm not borrowing it anyway, so no, that's, that's nice. Like, yeah, who right. cares? It has
0: no effect on me.
1: Yeah. So it had. So the Fed's increase Fed's increases in, uh, interest rates made a lot of headlines, but didn't really hit Main Street for months and months and months and months. And it only- Yeah, it was like we would hear every
0: night on the news about, you know, Powell just raised another three quarters of a point. It's really going to have a massive effect. And while it does have some effect, I don't think the average American- really was like, oh yeah, I see where that's hitting me right, the wallet right this second. Yeah. And, and, and so investor sentiment was sort of the same exact thing, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and the reason was because we were all still flush with cash. Consumers, businesses, in, middle, in 2022, we all still had cash to burn. And so we weren't borrowing. So sure. we didn't, you know, we weren't borrowing that expensive money. So we didn't, it didn't affect our behavior, didn't modify our behavior in any way. It was only hurting the banks. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. It was only hurting the banks, but the banks weren't. That's the thing, though, is the banks weren't. The banks still had our money, right? Because let's circle back to that deposits idea. Our deposits are the bank's liabilities, and so while the banks have our liabilities on their balance sheet, balance sheet, and they're cheap, the bank doesn't need the Fed's money. Now, in the third and fourth, in the third quarter, you started to see you, you noticeably started to see deposit levels. Which were trending down, kind of really accelerate mm-hmm. and get to a and get to a point where banks were like, "Hey, hey, like d- these deposits are." There's a lot of deposit outflows. Like people are not, uh, you know, th- th- our our li- you know, our cheap liabilities are disappearing. And let's also circle back to that uh, that asset liability concept. Mm-hmm. The bank, so its its cheap liabilities are disappearing it made a bunch of loans that must stay outstanding. They are not callable, right? Like mm-hmm. They are staying outstanding. And so a bank, the, the, the regulators, uh, one of the key regu- issues that the, the bank regulators, the OCC and the FDIC monitor at bank level should monitor at bank levels is the, the loan to deposit ratio. So if you make a ton of loans and you don't have very many deposits, well, that's a weak bank. Whereas if you have a ton of deposits and you've put a little bit of some of that money on the street or relatively less money that on, that money on the street, well, that's a very stable bank. It May not be a very profitable bank, might may not be as profitable of a bank, but it's very stable. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a regulatory point of view, they care about stability among, um, above all. And so as deposits are decreasing, the banks are getting nervous because they're like, hey, our loan to deposit ratios are getting too high. We need to go. Borrow some money. Yeah, we need to. We need to go either raise deposits or borrow some money now at a much higher rate from the Fed. But now at a much higher rate, which affects their profitability. So
0: then we started talking about how the tide was turning with Wall Street now becoming. They were less competitive uh, on a DSCR loan than a bank, right? And now the tide starts turning,
1: right? So when when you've got you know the regulator coming in. The threat of the regulator coming in because your loan-to-deposit ratio too high is is an existential threat, right? So there's two things that you can do to affect your loan-to-deposit ratio. You can either decrease the numerator, decrease loans, Mm -hmm. or you can increase the denominator, increase deposits. And so the way that you increase deposits is you start paying, you offer more for them, right? You pay more. right? And so in the fourth quarter, and in the fourth quarter last year, and- it really accelerated in the first quarter this year. You saw banks off going from CD rates of one and a half percent, two percent to four and a half, five plus. Sure, and that put pressure on every all, all the other banks to keep up pace because they were starting to see deposit outflows. So, in addition to you have like the, the overall macro economy with deposit outflows, right, decreasing money supply. You now have competition within the banks to. Grab as much of what's left as you can, and they're paying more to do that to kind of a musical chairs issue, right? Sure. Uh, so that they're not the last man standing, or they are the last man standing. So when you have those that increase in deposit rates, that means that you, the loans that you do make, you have to charge more for them. And so, because you know you can't borrow money at five percent and lend it at five and a half, and, you know, and pay for overhead, that doesn't make any sense. Got it. So. All of a sudden, in the past, uh, in the past, you know, six months, especially in the past two to three months, we've seen bank term sheets move materially. They want to decrease the number of loans. They want to affect the numerator, so they've gotten tighter on credit guidelines. That's right. They want to decrease the amount of loans, and if they're going to make a loan, they're going to charge. They want to make good money on it, so they're going to. They, so they've increased the cost of it.
0: There's a great story that I point out to everybody. Uh, again, you can. Read all of our show notes at realinvestorradio.com forward slash notes. Uh, The notes for today's episode will be in uh, that uh, Google box, whatever we choose uh, here. Uh, But it was an American banker story, uh, Jack, that that, uh, was entitled midsize banks tighten up on commercial credit. And that's exactly what you're explaining right now. I think I just heard you said they're basically not making as many loans, but they need to make more money on them. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly right. They've they've tightened the criteria, more boxes for for each borrower to check, which makes uh you know which makes you know the standard investor. Let's face it that just it just feels like I got to jump through more hoops to get this loan that's now going to cost me more money. Yeah, exactly. Is essentially what you're saying.
1: Yeah. So there was this. So now there's been this slingshot, right? Like last last summer to. Maybe the first quarter, banks were once and again an attractive place for Main Street investors to borrow money. But now, because of this increase in deposits and tightening of boxes by by bank loan committees, once again DSCR is is back in you know is is now this I would say the same cost but better terms and um, way better service and way better service. So from a predictability point of view of like, hey, how do I fund my business on a going forward basis? We're we're doing a lot of that product for for those reasons, you know. So. I'm watching these trends uh, be- because you know because they affect our, our volumes and I'm trying to plan our business, so that's the trend that we're currently seeing. I wanted to circle back on you know as real estate investors ourselves, we've worked with banks for twenty years mm-hmm. and they've you know that that's how we built our whole rental portfolio like we built the vast majority of our rental portfolio before the DSCR product ever existed sure, and it's still one of the major sources of capital for small business in America. Right. And so one of the points that I wanted to make on today's podcast is that I'm concerned about the role that com- the, the commercial banking industry is going to have in main street, single family real estate on a going forward basis. Yes. Um, sort of the trend, the long-term trends here, yeah, the long-term trends, particularly because so, you know, particularly because at a point this, this, moment in time the banking industry also has this looming commercial real estate credit issue office basically sure so just for folks who uh not really caught up on where the
0: market is there uh, in in some major markets around the country LA Chicago Austin you know they're experiencing Extremely high vacancy rates in commercial real estate right now. So in some of these, in some of these places, twenty-five to forty percent vacant right now, which no one's talking about. So go ahead, I apologize.
1: Yeah, no, and and so banks and banks have the underlying paper. Uh, you know, by and large, you know, banks have funded a lot of office buildings over the years, and uh, so there's a significant concern that are there embedded losses that that have not been realized and. Have the banks appropriately reserved for that, mm-hmm. uh, or their losses yet yet to take on that? So, from a main street real estate investor's point of view, investing in single family houses, it's just insult to injury.
0: Yeah, you're just, you you want to say, well, that doesn't concern me, when in fact
1: it actually does. Yeah, exactly, it, it does because if you care about your bank, well, then you care about this because your bank cares about that, and you're going to get you know and, rolled up in it. Yeah, and it, and it's gonna it's gonna flow downhill. And so the the terms that you're going to get from your bank are going to be, I think, less competitive. And for a material period of time, like they've got a looming CRE uh, crisis that they have not yet figured out how to quantify. You've still got a very hawkish Fed who's increasing interest rates and wants to make sure Powell wants to make sure that he his legacy is not that inflation crept back up. So he's probably going to leave rates high for longer than he needs to. Sure, um, that's our estimation anyway. And so I don't see this working. I guess my point is I don't see this working itself out in the next twelve months. I don't think that banks are going to be once again competitive, once again a a really interesting resource uh, for Main Street real estate investors to fund their business.
0: Why do I care, Jack? I mean, I've I've got Wall Street to back me up. You know, who cares? I it's it's another. It's instead of going to Home Depot, I go to Lowe's. Right. So. You know what? What's the concern?
1: Yeah, the the concern there is that we've gone from single sourcing to the banks to now potentially single sourcing to to main or to Wall Street, and so Wall Street we ride the curve of in the DSCR product run is priced generally off of the five year swap rate, the five year Treasury, and so that all of a sudden matters, right? Like I never cared, I never watched. <laughs> Ten years ago, I did not watch the five-year <laughs> the treasury. Five-year and, note, like yeah, it just it didn't affect my business. <laughs> right today, it affects our it affects pricing of DSCR loans on a daily basis. Right now, is uh, that right? Yeah. So, like it, all of a sudden, that matters. How is it so specifically tied? Uh, because the bond buyers expect that the loans will pay off on average five years. Ah. They they think that they're buying a five-year asset. I see. Because given historical prepayment speeds, that's how long uh, it's taken. Also on a lot of the product though you can get different prepayment penalties the one that we do the most of is a 54321 prepayment penalty uh structure mm-hmm. you can you can get pay a little bit higher interest rate and get a 321 but um so given the 54321 prepayment structure the expectation is that the loan's going to out- be outstanding for 5 years yeah i think i
0: think from like a you know sort of a philosophical and and you know love of of the industry standpoint i i look at sort of the immunization of, of the local bank and even the regional bank at this point is something of, that, that is a cause of concern. So, so tell me what the other hurdles to the, to the average uh, investor like, like myself or, or so many people that we know, why do we care that we're seeing less business going to these community banks and more business going to the, to the Wall Street lender? what's what are some of the other hurdles that we should be worried about
1: i think that from a we're going to be fit more into programs right yeah. like the, the securitizations are standardized in some way exceptions are things that the bond buyers have to think about and so the people who the 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 the, the, com- the companies that are buying the this paper and then doing a securitization with them are trying to minimize exceptions. So I think that we are going to be forced more and more into particular boxes Yeah. now. And to the extent that we want exceptions, we're going to pay for them. Is the concern there that it's a loan product that sort of covers the
0: country rather than that smaller bank who understands the market so much better? And so you have to fit into the local box I don't have to fit into the box that governs the entire country, right? Yeah,
1: that's a fair point. Uh, there are also regions that benefit from that, right? Sure. Like sure. pricing is not different on a regional basis, right. though maybe it should be. <laughs> but at the moment, pricing is not different on a regional basis. You know, the the this this stronger markets that have better demographics are not being priced accordingly. Yeah, accordingly. Um. So there there's certainly regions of the company c- country where. Uh, one part of the country is subsidizing another part of the country, oh, sure, so yeah. to speak. But in but in general, loss rates have been very low on the product as a whole. So until we see like a, a significant, a material change in in loss rates, then maybe th- then the the underwriters will start making tweaks and saying, "Hey, if you're in uh, this particular region, we're going to charge you an extra fifty basis points just because."
0: I want to talk about the, the the one other hurdle that that I see, Jack, is. That the loan product is tied, as you said, to the the rents versus we've been in the rent markets. It's been shooting up like like uh, you know a rocket. What happens if all of a sudden we've got a revaluation of rents on these loans?
1: Yeah, I mean you get less proceeds. The thing is there, that's not a difference though. Like the that's bank, right. the bank's also underwrite DSCR, so like that that's not different from one product versus another. A lot of the business shifts over to
0: Wall Street. You're seeing that. What happens if they decide to get out of the business because the, it's just not valuable anymore? Oh, yeah. Just why would
1: they, you know, why would it not be valuable as long as the paper is good? All right, Jack. So maybe we can finish up with
0: just talking about just bringing this thing full circle right to the present. Talk about how it's going to affect um, the average audience member of the show. Let's talk about sort of, you know, where we are in the banking crisis and how we might be seeing, you know, some additional consolidation maybe some decreased service levels from the banking sector.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'm concerned that because of this banking crisis that we just witnessed, we there it generally is the case that regulators once there's a banking crisis they want to tighten everything up, right? They want to put the screws on, over, maybe overregulate a little bit, sure, which tends to increase the costs of regulation and makes it harder to be a small bank because mm. you've got similar cost of regulation amortized across a smaller balance sheet right? right right so that that is the that idea was led to or you know is what happened with Dodd Frank Dodd Frank was increased regulation coming out of the great recession and it led to a 10 year wave of of bank consolidation and, and frankly, M&A yeah right. and, yeah through M&A and and led to a what we'd witnessed was a an already a decrease in the service level from from local banks and and you know fewer local banks, you know they became regional banks. Then one regional bank bought another regional bank, and all of a sudden the you know we did we did loans with sixteen banks over the years. They are at two banks. All that paper is now at two banks. Thirty five
0: hundred community banks right. across the country have either been bought up or have gone out of business since two thousand and eight.
1: Yeah, and there's five thousand that remain, and there are some you know very credible predictions that it'll be twenty five hundred in 10 years from now
0: 90 percent of all deposits are within like 20 banks right now yeah exactly where it used to be the exact opposite where the the bulk of the deposits were in these local banks yeah exactly who
1: and those local banks are the ones who would return your phone call as a main street real estate investor right call up jp morgan chase and tell them you want a 200 thousand dollar loan like there's you you won't even get a return phone call right they can't do it so that's hyperbolic you know statement of course but like but the idea is that if we we will probably see another round of of consolidation in the banking industry that will probably lead you know towards larger balance sheets and that will probably lead to a continued decrease in the service level that main street real estate investors can expect from their local loan officer who's also probably aging up at the same time sure, and, sure. you know thinking about retiring in the right. next 5 10 out on the golf course as we speak so I only see the industry continuing to trend towards towards that kind of like institutionalization, uh, for better or worse. Right, a stronger connection between Wall Street and Main Street investing, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's something that that is that it started happening ten years ago. It's continuing to happen. It's I think it's only going to increase over the next ten years. It's something that, as a result, Main Street real estate investors need to be thinking about and be educated on those topics. Because the connection between those, you know, the, the, the connection between what happens on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and what happens in our Main Street real estate investing, investing business is tighter than than it ever has been.
0: One last thing that I want to touch on um, before we end the episode is the opportunities that you see right now for help me out. Uh, private lending is there going to be? This wave again of going back out to friends, family, and fools, as my uh, old mentor used to say, to fund our businesses.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. The private lending, you know, private lender, cre- and creative financing strategies. There you go. Yeah. I think are also like those. Those two things are going to be an important tool, an you know, important arrows in the quiver to seller have. financing. Yeah. Uh, Seller financing finance. yeah pr- private money with with negotiated terms so that you and frankly i think it's an it's it sh- it's a prudent piece of any real estate investor's balance sheet given otherwise you are you know the main the wall street de- uh, tail is going to be wagging the main street dog and this is one of the only things that you can probably do to try to mitigate that in some way right that you have some like uncorrelated money you know
0: in an upcoming episode we're going to be talking about should i securitize or not yeah and for for the average investor
1: yeah the the idea of doing a securitization is it's it's extreme can be in, in certain markets an extremely attractive cost of capital and give you a competitive advantage. Uh, it's one of the main reasons that institutional real estate investors were able to buy as much real estate in, as they did. They right. weren't dumb. They just had better money yeah, than us. Ex- 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 why, why can
0: they pay 110% of uh, asking price? Right. Are, are they just that dumb, Jack?
1: Right. No, they, 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 they weren't. They never were. They're making money all along but understanding how that securitization market works really kind of demystifies a lot of those things that are happening. So we did a securitization about 18 months ago. It was tremendous for our business. And at some point in the future, I'm sure we'll do, we'll do another one, but, uh, I'd look forward to kind of just kind of demystifying that process. It's not crazy brain surgery. It Mm -hmm. does require a certain amount, uh, enough scale to do it, but, uh, it's definitely something that main street investors should be educated on. You know, you should know, know what, you know, when it's an appropriate tool
0: let's tie it up for a bow with the audience. What do you, give them, give them something to think about, uh, things to keep their eyes, uh, um, open for over the next six to 12 months.
1: Yeah. I, I think that right now it's, um, you know, as we mentioned in the first episode, happy to be here right now after how kind of concerning and, uh, and low volume the end of 2022 was, Yeah, but I do not, we are certainly not out of the woods yet. Uh, and these, macroeconomic ideas are affecting, affecting our main street real estate business more than, more than they ever have. And so kind of keeping an eye on what's happening there and incorporating those ideas into your, your business planning is um, more, more important now than it has been.
0: Absolutely, folks. You cannot keep your eyes closed to all that's going on around us um, these big macro issues affect us right down to the street level. And that's what we're trying to get across here with this podcast episode, Jack. It's awesome. Thank you. Pleasure again. want to uh, thank everybody for checking us out. Your comments are always welcome. Please, please comment. It only helps us in designing uh, uh, content for you. Let us know what uh, you'd like us to talk about. If you have any questions, feel free to ask. We'd be glad to answer. But we look forward to seeing you on episode three. This is Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere signing out from Real Investor Radio. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.